Thank you, Brother Paul. That will be our focus just for a few minutes together this evening. I encourage you to open up your Bibles. We're going to focus on the wonderful words of life. The wonderful words of life. Now we're going to start with a little statement in Proverbs 25 and verse 11. Proverbs 25 and verse 11. In your Bibles you'll see a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken. We do have to watch our words. But I'm not going particularly in that direction with you this evening. The words of the Bible are fitly spoken. There's no set of words that have been so fitly spoken than the words that we find in Scripture. How thankful we are. And these words in the Bible are to direct our own speech. They are the standard for how we speak and what we speak in our regular conversation. Over in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, 1 Peter 4, verse 11, you'll notice Peter saying, If any man speak, let him speak, as it were, the oracles of God. You see how that the Word of God is to fill our own speech, our own, our own words, especially when it comes to matters of life and matters of the soul, then not that we are always speaking the Word of God verbatim, but the ideals and thoughts that we share ought to come right out of the Word. In Acts 26, verse 25, you remember Paul being before both, both Festus and Agrippa, local leaders there, um, near Jerusalem. And Festus looked to Paul, and Paul had been speaking about Christ. He looked to Paul and he said, Paul, all that learning you have done has made you mad. In other words, you are out of your mind. And Paul said, I'm not mad. I'm not out of my mind, most noble Festus, but I am speaking to you words of truth and soberness. Oh, the wonderful words of life. Now, together this evening, I'd like for us to notice three, three, only three, uh, of the wonderful words of life. When we study together, we have a lot of options. A lot of options. We can go back and study a, a whole story, a story of Joseph a whole narration and, and draw lessons from that, from that study. We can study great prophecies of Christ and the church and, and learn much. We can do character studies of people like we've done with, with Caleb in the Old Testament and Moses and, and Christ himself and Peter and Paul. We can do character studies. We can take a, 
a paragraph out of the Bible and read it and analyze it and look at the background to it and the context of it and then draw lessons for us out of that. We can take a topic. We can take a topic and see what Scripture generally says about a religious topic. But then tonight what we're doing is just a word study. Three words. Three words. The first word will be a word that exalts Christ and his plan for man. The second word will be a word that compels us to live for Christ. And the third word will be a warning to us about the forces working against Christ. Just three words. Three words. The first word is the word anoint. Anoint, if you're taking notes. Just anoint. A-N-O-I-N-T. Anoint. Anoint. And you you know what that means. It simply means... You know, taking a, a substance and smearing it upon an object or sprinkling it upon an object in order uh, to make a statement or, to, uh, or, or, or for just a special purpose, okay? To anoint someone or, or something. Uh, the idea is, um, the idea that comes to our mind, you know, when God was delivering uh, his people out of Egypt uh, during that last plague, uh, he had them take the blood of an unblemished uh, lamb, without spot, and without blemish, and take that blood of that lamb and, and smear it on the doorposts, so that that would uh, indicate that these are the people that God is wanting to save. And that that created the institution known as the Passover. Okay, that's the idea. Uh, that blood marked that particular house as something set apart for God. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three particular positions that were uh, anointed. They would anoint the person taking this position with oil. Uh, Let's quickly notice that. Uh, The three positions are prophet, priest, and king. Uh, As an illustration, uh, or at least a reference for each of these, uh, prophet, um, 1 Kings 19, verse 16 God came to Elijah and said, Elijah, what are you doing way over here? Why did you run away? I've got work for you to do. And one of those works was you got to go and anoint Elisha. 1 Kings 19, 16. You got to anoint Elisha to be prophet in your place. He would start preparing Elisha to be prophet because God had plans for Elijah to be with him in heaven. So prophet, prophet. A reference for, for priest, Exodus uh, 28, verse 41. Exodus 28, 41. Speaking there of how that Aaron and his sons uh, were to be dressed uh, with particular coats and sashes and along with how they were to be dressed, they were to be anointed with oil uh, as, they, as they took their position as, as priests. This would set them apart for this role. But prophet and priest and of course king King. One reference for that would be 1 Samuel 10 in verse 1 where Samuel goes and, under God's instructions and he anoints uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, to be prince over uh, the people. Prophet, priest, and king. So I want us to think about the word anoint. Anoint. And this ties right into Jesus Christ. Okay. Ties right into it. The word uh, in the Hebrew language for anoint, uh, is the root of the word Messiah. 
So the root ideal of Messiah is the one anointed. When you come to the word Christ, Christ, uh, in the Greek language, New Testament, Greek, Old Testament, basically Hebrew, when you come to the Greek New Testament, the root word of Christ is anoint. The word anoint in, under, in the Greek language is creo, okay, which is the root of Christ. Okay. And this is not surprising because Christ is known to be, is pointed out to be the anointed one. Okay. So let's notice uh, this, this was a promise from the Old Testament. Um, Daniel chapter 9, 25 to 27, Daniel has a great prophecy of Jesus and within that prophecy of Daniel 9, 25 to 27, it says that the anointed one would come at a certain time. There are a lot of details there, but the anointed one would, would come at a certain time. And he would come to put an end to sin and transgression and iniquity. Not that people would stop sinning, but he came, he would come, he's the only one that could come with a solution to sin. So he would, it would be the anointed one who would come. And also it mentions there in Daniel 9, that this anointed one would be cut off at a certain time. In other words, he would be crucified for sin. Now, Wednesday evening as we were studying prayer, we noticed Psalm number 2, 1 through 4, and there it it is prophesied that the leaders of the land during the time of Christ uh, would counsel together in order to... um, Bring charges against the Lord and His anointed one. And the reason that was comforting to the early disciples as they're praying, we were noticing their prayer there in Acts chapter 4. You see, as they were being persecuted for speaking about Christ, they remembered Psalm 2 how that those associated with the anointed one, the Lord and the anointed one, they would. Um, they would be persecuted. And so they, they were not really surprised. In fact, we notice in the prayer, they didn't ask for relief from persecution, just that they, would be, they could be bold. They could have courage. They could have faith, boldness, and courage. So Jesus is known as the Anointed One. Now, now let your mind come over to Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, where Peter is doing some preaching there uh, during the time of the conversion of Cornelius. And Peter presents Jesus, Acts 10 and 38, as the one anointed by the Holy Spirit and power. And that enabled him to go about doing a lot of good. Okay. So there you are. Jesus is the anointed one. The word anoint is very uh, precious to us when we think about Christ. Now, it is uh, a beautiful thing to see that ultimately Jesus is the prophet Jesus is the priest, and Jesus is the king. Jesus is the prophet of our day. Because according to John 1, verse 18, he is the one who came to make known the the ways of the Father. He is the one who came, and he was able, unlike anybody else, to interpret to people the ways of God himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read that in these last days, God has spoken through His Son. He has spoken in various other ways in times past, but now He is speaking through His Son. Jesus is uh, that prophet. In Acts chapter 3, and verse 22, uh, Peter again preaching there, but Peter this time 
he goes back to Deuteronomy 18, where it is revealed that a prophet would come who would be like Moses. Okay, a prophet like Moses. And Peter indicates to us in Acts 3.22 that Jesus is that prophet that was prophesied to come way back in Deuteronomy 18.15-18. Okay. So Jesus is the prophet. But Jesus also is the priest of our day. He's the high priest of our day. That's, that's how Hebrews 3 and verse 1, verse 1 indicates. It says that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the bottom of our faith. He is our faith. He's the object of our faith. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest. Our high priest. And we read in Hebrews um, 9 and verse 12, and this is, this is so special to us, okay, that Jesus entered the holy place, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And when he did that, he secured eternal redemption for us all or for anyone who follows him. Okay. And so Jesus is our high priest, prophet, priest, and of course he is our king. He is our king. We love the, the question of the wise men in Matthew 2, verse 2. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we've come to, to worship him. He is the king. He is the king. He's called in Revelation 19, 16, Sometimes these verses just don't come. I hope that's it. I've got a 17-14 in my mind and a 19-16 in my mind. I don't know which one it is, so there you are. But we do know that he is called King of Kings and what? Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. He is our King. Gabriel would say to Mary in Luke 1, 32 and 33 that he will be great he shall be called the Son of the Most High, and he will be given the throne of his father David, and he shall rule and reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is king. He is now on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities being made subject to him. 1 Peter 3.22 So notice that the word anoint exalts Jesus Christ. Exalts the Lord. He as prophet, priest, and king. He is the anointed one. He is the one who was to come and he did come. How thankful we are. Now don't you feel better for being here already? I mean, isn't that I know you already know this, but it's just so wonderful to me to be reminded of these great facts. Now, before we leave the word anoint. Something interesting is said over in 1 John 2 and verse 20. It talks about how that, that we are now the anointed of the Holy One. We are the Christians, those following God, those who have the knowledge of God, those who are submitting to God. John's writing about us and he calls us the anointed of the Holy One. 
Now, that's not real surprising because, as we said, those who are anointed, well, how do we become anointed? Well, not by oil, okay, but through the blood of Jesus, spiritually speaking, through the blood of Jesus, when we are obedient, when we are immersed in water for the remission of sins, we become the anointed of the anointed one. And for us there, all that simply means we have been set apart as the people of God with a special task of serving, worshiping, serving Him, and doing His bidding while on earth. Been set apart. But also, in in a sense, we take up the same roles that we've been talking about, prophet, priest, and king. In this sense, in this sense. We are prophets, not in the sense that we foretell the future, but in the sense that we share the word of God. Uh, We are teachers, we are prophets. We are priests in the sense, well, in a lot of different senses, we're priests. But we're priests in the sense that as we teach the word of God, then that helps someone come to know about Jesus, and we help people come in contact with the shed blood of Jesus, which is, of course, very, very good for their souls and very, very good for the rest of their lives. We're priests, at least in that sense, as well. Of course, Romans 12, verse 1 says that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice for God. So that, in a sense, we're priests also. But as we are able to help people through the teaching of the gospel come to know about the shed blood of Jesus, we are priests. And we are kings in the sense that we lead people to the one who can, can take care of their souls. Is it written somewhere in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 5? I'm going to start reading Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us a kingdom. He's made us priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So our first word was, is anoint. Second word is the word burden. The word burden. And please be looking at Galatians 6 with me for just a minute. The word burden. This is, this is a word that compels us to live for the one who died for us. Word burden. Galatians 6 and verse 2, of course, says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a huge part of our living for Christ. You'll notice in Galatians 6, verse 5, that we are to bear our own burdens, so let's do a little thinking here. Galatians 6, verse 2, talks about common burdens we all have. Now, another passage that you'll want to consider in, in Mark is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 4, that speaks of this body, this tent that we're in, this tabernacle that we're in, that we are so longing to put off. Okay? When we are finally on the judgment day and we finally get to go to heaven, we get to put off this body and be clothed with a spiritual body. But as we're, as we're in this body, you'll notice there in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 4, that Paul says, in this body we groan being burdened. 
A burden is um, something that is pressing down on us with a crushing weight. Something that is pressing down upon us with a crushing weight. And the common burdens of life can do that to us. And as Christians, we must be aware of that. And, be, and stand ready to help. For this is a law of Christ. Common burdens such as illness. Common burdens such as loss. Common burdens such as financial setbacks. Common burdens that come from just what I would call the twists and turns of life. Are burdens. And Christians are aware. We are aware. We have our ear to the ground. We have our eyes wide open. We are aware and we are anxious to help uh, people lift their burdens. Another burden to add in there, and really is the one that most fits Galatians chapter 6, is the burden of dealing with sin. The burden of temptations to sin. And the burden of what do I do now that I have sinned? Well, you see, we're ready because we're the anointed ones. We have the gospel. We want to tell people about the anointed one himself. So there are the burdens that uh, are just common to, to all of us. Common burdens. Right. We must realize that oftentimes these, these burdens are crushing down on folks. And we want to help them before um, it gets to them and, and drives them away from God. But then in Galatians 6 verse 5, he speaks of the burden of responsibility. Everyone shall bear your own burden. These are actually two different words. Okay. We won't get into that because you can see it just by reading. It's another type of burden. It's the burden of responsibility. Now, when I read um, Peter's words in Acts 2, after he has given them you know, uh, the answer of repent and be baptized, Every one of you for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. After that, with many other words, Peter did exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward, this perverse generation. Save yourselves. It's not that we save ourselves in the, in the direct sense, because we know we depend on the Lord uh, to save us. But the idea there is, to, to repent yourself. Repent ye. You know, take responsibility for what you have done. Take responsibility for your sins. That's what Peter is saying there uh, to, the, to those. And I believe that's the general idea of Paul's statement in Philippians 2 and verse 12 when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And Paul was encouraging them that even when he had to be absent from the brethren there in Philippi and out of communication with the brethren there at Philippi, that they would continue to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's not that they could work out their own salvation on their own without Christ, but the fact is, you know, be responsible before God. Be accountable before God. We know what Adam and Eve did way back in Genesis 3, 12 and 13. They shifted the blame. They shifted the blame. Adam said first, the woman that you gave me, 
She gave me of the fruit and I did eat. And then Eve followed up and she said, the serpent beguiled me and then I did, I did eat. So Adam blamed God and, and Eve blamed Satan. And in general, human beings have been shifting the blame ever since. But we must stand as examples of those who would not do that. Think about what, what is blamed nowadays. Everything from, you know, you can blame your environment for your lack of service to God. You can blame your circumstances. Maybe you blame, uh, somebody might blame their genetics, just my genetic makeup, just how I'm made, you know, just the way I am. Um, people have jumped on the bandwagon of all these syndromes, these, these, these neurotic uh, syndromes. You, know, you can create any, a syndrome for any weakness. Okay? It's my I spend too much syndrome. You know, you know I, I need I'm not pointing at Christy, but just I'm looking in that direction. You create a syndrome for any any situation. I worry too much syndrome. Okay. Just what we need to do is just cut off the last part of that word and leave sin there, and we'd be better shaped before God. But we do, we blame you know we blame it on our diet. Uh, we we blame it on about anything. Yeah. There are folks in the religious world who teach uh, original sin. You ever heard of that? Original sin. And then they say, well, sin is inherited and so uh, you're going to do what you're going to do and so therefore I'm not as responsible for my sin as you think. Well, that's not taught in Scripture. Most people blame either God, somebody else, or Satan himself. But nonetheless, we're not that way. We're not to be that way. So there is the burden of common burdens that we help bear with one another and then there's the burden of Responsibility, And this is how we are compelled to live for Jesus, as you very well know. I like to sum it up this way when I think about responsibility. Each person walking around is responsible for learning the gospel. Each person walking around is responsible for obeying the gospel. Each person walking around is responsible for living the gospel, no matter who they are. Whether they're, they're at the White House or whether they're on a football field or whether they live in California or India or Africa or anywhere, they're responsible for doing this. Each person walking on this earth is responsible for teaching the gospel to other people okay, through instruction of Scripture and through uh, by their own personal example. And each person walking around this earth is responsible for relieving the suffering of somebody else. That's what we do as Christians. We are looking for an opportunity to relieve the suffering of other people. In Acts chapter 11, 27 through 30, you remember a word came from a prophet that uh, there was to be a great famine in Judea. And so the people in Antioch gathered together, put their means together, and sent relief uh, to the brethren up, up there. Now go back with me for just a minute with this burden in Galatians 6. Because Galatians 6 verse 1 says, If a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, 
considering yourself lest you also be tempted, and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The main burden that we ought to be focused on in life is this burden of sin, the temptation to sin, and what do I do once I have sinned? What do I do? This responsibility we feel toward those who are burdened under sin keeps us from being isolated. The Lord doesn't want us to ever be isolated. It helps us guard against being isolated. We are not not, uh, to live life on our own, but rather we are looking as the feet and the and the hands and the eyes and the ears of the Lord, we are looking to help someone with their sin problem. In Galatians 5, the idea was you need to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 6 says, in practical terms, this is how I want you to do this. All right. So, one word, anoint. Second word is burden. The third word is vain. V-A, vain. Violin. Vain. V-A-I-N. V-A-I-N. Only got three minutes to do this. Vain. You know the word vain means empty? Okay, and that goes two ways. Empty as to substance, content, okay, quality. Empty as to substance, content, quality. Okay. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 6, Let no man deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God is going to come upon you. That's what he says. If we are deceived by empty words, and pretty much the majority of what we hear out in the world are empty words because they're not the words of the Lord Jesus. They don't come from the ideals of Jesus. Let no one deceive you. That's another responsibility that we have before God is not to be deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Words that have no truth in them. That barely have a grain of truth in them. We've got to be on guard against those. And then, the word vain or empty goes in this direction. That is, it describes uh, something that is uh, aimless or fruitless or really useless without profit. Okay, uh, Useless. Useless. Without purpose, without profit. Okay. An example of that would be Titus chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul strongly says, I want you to avoid all these foolish questions because they are unprofitable and vain. They're empty. They lead to no good end. They have no purpose to them. Rather... We ought to look at uh, Hebrews 6 and verse 9, and the encouragement there is, we speak about things that pertain to salvation. We speak about things that pertain to salvation. Notice that there in Hebrews 6 verse 9. That's what we ought to be discussing. What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That's what we ought to be discussing. Avoid foolish questions. Foolish questions. Jesus had 40 days on this earth after he was resurrected. According to Acts 1, 1 through 3, what did he spend his time talking about? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Not a bunch of foolish questions, not just a bunch of interesting questions and useless details. 
but about the kingdom of God. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, the word vain is used in both of these ways. And we will finish up our study by noticing this. 1 Corinthians 15, of course, is emphasizing the importance of the resurrection of Christ. You know this. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, and here's something else you know, then our preaching is vain. Right, Brother Paul? It's empty. It has no substance, has no content, has no quality to it. Okay. So, some people would say our preaching here at Midway is always this way. Okay. That's why I'm just throwing that out right there. So, but in reality, if Christ has not been raised, then indeed our preaching in vain is in vain, and also our faith has no substance to it. There's no, no quality to it. No real meaning underneath it. I noticed that back last summer when there were certain groups of people tearing down buildings and burning. And, and I noticed a couple of reporters would go in there and they would stop somebody and say, why are you doing this? And they literally did not know. They could not form two sentences together to tell you why they were doing this. Okay, Absolutely no substance to... Their, their lives at that time. But our faith has tremendous quality to it because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of who He is. Somebody asks you, why do you go to church where you go to church? Okay. Don't say, that's just where we go. Don't say that. Oh, well, we've always gone there. Don't say that. There's more, there's more to our faith than that. There's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now notice here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is, this translation says, futile, vain. Okay. And you are yet in your sins. Now this carries the idea of your faith has no purpose. It has no end. Your faith cannot lead you for, to forgiveness. Your faith cannot lead to salvation. Your faith cannot lead to eternal life if Christ has not been raised. And so one word that exalts Christ, one word that compels us to live for Him, and one word that warns us against things that are vain, things that are empty, things that are useless, and things that have no substance. Thank you so much for following along in these scriptures. And as always, we extend the Lord's invitation on this occasion. We want to, to remind ourselves of the great, tremendous love of God brought to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, in so many ways, especially the sacrifice of Himself on the cross. The Lord invites us to come home to Him any time that we feel that need. It's possible to go astray from God any day. We can go astray in our hearts. We can go astray in our thoughts. We can go astray in our motivations. We can go astray. We, but the Lord opens up His heart to us and says, Come home. If we can assist you with any spiritual need, please make that known right now as we stand together at this moment and sing.